everybody. Morning. Okay, yeah, hey. Um, Okay, so speaking of we have questions, here's my question. Do we know what we mean by God anymore? Um, Yeah, so maybe I want to begin by saying one of the reasons why I left the evangelical church was because something seemed true and important, not because a bunch of things seemed untrue and unimportant, but actually the other way around. And here was one of the things that seemed true and important was a kind of statement that we don't know what we mean by God anymore. I thought, yeah, that, that's both alluring and sort of calls to me um, and pushes me sort of into further questions. What do we, what if we don't know what we mean by God anymore? And, um, <laughs> but sort of being at the center of a church as a pastor made carrying that question challenging. <laughs> It would be an understatement, I suppose. I don't know if you've ever heard Oscar Wilde's like, funny formulation. He said, um, never underestimate man's ability to misunderstand something when his paycheck depends upon it. <laughs> so, that, yeah, suddenly I was like, oh, now I know what he means. Um, and in a way, I think it's kind of sad. Um, it's sad in this sense. Like, it, Well, if I go back in time, I think, well, I can't both be at the center of a large church giving talks about God and wonder, you know, what I'm even talking about, wonder what any of us mean by God. That, that's a, that, that seems impossible to do. Maybe on the one hand, that was just a limitation in my own thinking or a limitation in my own maturity. Maybe those two things can coexist because it's kind of sad. I have many, many uh, friends who are pastors who are in the ministry and I think in some ways, they're the most equipped to wrestle with a question like, what are we even talking about when we talk about God? But they're not allowed to. <laughs> they're not allowed to because their paycheck depends upon it. And so they do it privately. And that has its own um, consequences, I suppose, down the road. Um, yeah, so... Maybe I don't want to say much more about that right at the sec- right, right the second. Um, it's obviously been very different here at C3. Like, if I say to you, I don't know what I mean by God anymore, you'd say, well, okay. <laughs> uh, well, tell us more. <laughs> tell us more about what you don't know. <laughs> so that's been very freeing, and I think, um, I think C3 as a, as a spiritual community ought to exist in the world, and it's important that we gather in this way and that, and that we're around one another and that we invite a variety of people to speak on a variety of things because I think religious communities or spiritual communities, there have always been um, fringe elements of spirituality or religion, always. And, and in some ways, the fringe is what helps the whole process continue to evolve and change and grow and so it's important posts to hold. I think you can hold the post of saying, we don't know what we mean by God anymore, and not expect everyone else to hold the same post, because <laughs> they're not going to, first of all. Um, but it's not really a question of who's right or who's wrong. Maybe it's a question of 
how those two things bump into each other. Um, and anyway, that's the job of being a heretic. And I've been called a heretic a few times in my life. And of course, I know a bit of the, the origin of that word. It means to hold an opinion. And so if someone calls me a heretic, I think, I hope someday <laughs> I'll, I'll live into such a thing. <laughs> because just saying I don't believe something is not being a heretic. You know, a heretic is a form, form, formulating an opinion on something and often an opinion that is not held by the establishment, by the mainstream. And so maybe something in my talk today will strike you as heresy in the truest sense of the word. Like maybe I'm getting closer to an opinion. And I thought, well, when I first left the evangelical church, I actually said that out loud as one of the reasons why I'm leaving that I don't, I don't know what I mean by God anymore. I don't think we know what we mean by God anymore. And so I just thought I'd revisit that question, you know, six years later, like, or seven or whatever it's been. Like, do I now know? Like, and get ready, because now I'm going to tell you what. <laughs> anyway, I just thought, has that question changed? And that's kind of where I'm going. And I, I also want to say a couple of other things. I think the idea that we don't know what we mean by God anymore is true for both atheists and sort of Bible-believing Christians. And what I mean is, like, if an atheist says, well, I don't believe in God, I want to know more. Like, well, what do you mean when you say God? And same with um, a, a believer. Like, oh, I believe in God. Well, like, which one? Or what do you mean when you say? And, and I do think we are in some new terrain, some new territory as a, as a species even, and in our own evolution of development or consciousness or growth or whatever. And, um, and maybe I should say something about the modern world. I think the modern world puts us around other groups, faiths, beliefs, ideas, and ideologies that are, um, that's different than our ancestors. It's true that other religions bumped into each other, but I don't know about the sheer quantity of possibilities inundating us at all times. Plus, in the modern world, unlike any other time in history, we have this idea that you can believe whatever you want to believe, which I'm telling you, that's brand new, just if we take the history of civilizations. It's not like, um, you know, Jesus was being raised by Mary and Joseph, or I guess Joseph is kind of MIA, we don't know where he is, but just Mary. And, and he's like, you know, among the many religions, which one shall I choose? You know, you didn't, that kind of thinking was, was very new and not, not possible in a way. So I guess what I'm saying is we're inundated and we're around, we might work with people that have wildly different ideas about the way that the world works. And we might even marry one for that matter. Um, so I guess partly what I'm saying is we're in some new, some new terrain. Um, okay, I want to say something in general about theism. So, if we take theism and atheism for, for a second. So, theism, in the most general definition, is something like this. It's a belief in a creator, or a sustainer, or both, a creator and a sustainer of the universe. That's maybe uh, premise number one. So, a theist is someone who believes in a being, generally, um, or a, or a presence that is both the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And 
intervenes in the world in some way. That's usually what makes a theist. You see, there are a lot of things packed into that short phrase. Like, all right. And so if you're an atheist, all that means is after theism is technically what it means, then in some ways you're positioning yourself as what comes after theism or, or, is, or not theism. So either not a creator and sustainer or not an interventionist God. And see, already we have to say, well, what do you mean by God? You know, what are we talking about here? both if you're going to reject or accept. And I think one of the kind of down, uh, one of the things that I, I find a little distasteful about the new atheist movement, which I think has given great gifts, by the way, to the world and with these books like Dawkins and so forth and so on, raising very interesting arguments and ideas, is they're often going after a pretty small idea or image of God. They're saying oh, you believe God created the world 10,000 years ago and dinosaurs died in the flood and I'm going to go right after that and, and therefore turn that into theism or atheism or there is a God or there is not a God. And it's, it's a very limiting and small image. It's a very limiting and small image of the divine, we could say. So my main point right now this is all intro stuff, <laughs> is that um, uh, both atheists and theists, I, in my view, need to struggle again uh, uh, with the question, what do we mean by God? Okay. Um, let's turn to some Carl Sagan. I'm going to actually read quite a bit of Carl Sagan because I want to give you a, a, a sense for the modern predicament we find ourselves in. So this is from, well, really originally from a speech that he gave, Pale Blue Dot, and that was later turned into a book, but I'm going to read, read what's in your bulletin here, and then I'm going to keep going with the rest of the, the passage here. So he says, look again at that dot. So now you need your imagination. So imagine the earth from space. That's what he's talking about, the dot. Like you've all seen it, and by the way, the fact that you've seen images of that makes you different than all of your ancestors, all of them. They didn't have an image like that. Now, maybe you could say the shamans or the, you know, the explorers of early consciousness imagined such a thing, okay, but not like elementary school kids being shown an image of the earth from space. Right? So I want you to imagine that. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives on this pale blue dot. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, Economic doctrines, yes, but capitalism is the best, you know. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every kind of peasant, or every kind of king and peasant, like in Monty Python, 
oh, there's some lovely filth over here. We're the peasants. And then the king comes along and says, oh, I'm king of the Britons. And they're like, king of the who? The king of the Britons. Well, we didn't vote for you. You don't vote for a king. I don't really have a very good English accent. I'm sorry. <laughs> every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, otherwise known as every politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Do you see what I mean? Like, do we know what we mean by God anymore? Like, I'm suggesting, well, this was written in the 20th century, but now in the 21st century, this is very difficult terrain. It's amazing terrain. It's a new existential plane that we're on. That's ex what I'm saying. And this is humbling stuff. Everything you've ever believed, it makes you wonder, like, what, how, what big of a difference does my individual ideology or belief system really make? He's, he's shaking that tree. Every religion, and religions are funny things, the ones that you know of. They're you know, many, many, many dozens that we've never heard of because they're lost in antiquity. But just the ones, like, and if we take the 14.5 billion year old universe, there we are, you know, where are we? If, if that's like, a, like a, a f the length of a football field, where are we in that, you know, somewhere down on the last millimeter close to the, to the goal line, that's where we are. And then God was like, you know what? I finally have an idea. Jesus, that's my big idea. 14.5 billion years later. So that's what I mean. It's like, wait a minute. What do we mean by these things? What do we mean? And by the way, I was talking to my brother-in-law who's a little more scientific than I am. And we were talking about 14.5 billion years. This is where we were fishing. I don't know why we were talking about that. I was just thinking it's funny, like, the way we hear something like that. Oh, yeah, 14.5. That's how old the universe is. I, I was going to say 14.4 billion, but you're probably right. 14. We don't it doesn't even make any sense. And he said, he said, by the way, that's assuming, and this is a major assumption that scientists make, that the laws of the universe behaved 14.5 billion years ago the way they behave today, and that's not a given assumption. Even our understanding of time, we have to base it on our current and present understanding of time. That's one thing. We don't, don't understand time very well, and time may have functioned differently at different times. That's weird. It's like, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to make a doctrine statement out of that. You know, it's, it's difficult. Okay. I'm going to read some more Sagan here. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors that, so that 
in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged posture in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light, by the pale blue dot. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Feel how sobering that is? The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes, settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. This I wonder about. Like, it's been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. In other words, there's an existential dimension to it. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. It's an interesting conclusion, isn't it? Like, why not just conclude, who the hell cares? You know, honestly. But his conclusion is, maybe we ought to take more responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, because this is it. So I think, okay, this is an interesting place to land. And I think this is the, one of the major and dominant questions that we're struggling with in the 21st century. How do we treat other people? How do we live on this planet? How do we, knowing what we know about the vastness of time and space and how insignificant the human species really is in the vast scheme of things, how do we live then? How should we live? And, and with that comes the question of God. What do we imagine the totality really is? What do we imagine what's actually real? Okay. I want to invite you to think about two realms this morning as it relates to this question, do we know what we mean by God anymore? Two realms. The first is what I, I guess I'll call the phenomenological realm, the realm of our experience. And our experience of what? Well, our experience of, of the beyond or the transcendent or the mystery or reality. And just right now, it, just in your own mind, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but just like 
ask yourself, have I ever had an, an experience that takes me out beyond what I thought was true or real or the way I conceived of things? Or I bumped into something that was difficult to explain or I couldn't explain it to myself? Or what is my actual experience is the first sort of line of questioning. What is my actual experience? And I think this is um, more often than not ignored in religious circles because there's a lot of talk about God. I don't know if you've noticed that. Now it's also happening in politics. Like a lot of talk about God is this and God is that and God does this and God does that. God is about this and God is about that. But if you stop someone and say, what is your experience of God? Well, then things become a little more challenging if you're going to have an honest conversation. In fact, I was meeting with a pastor a couple years ago and um, he was doing something similar. He was saying, well, I know God is like this, and I know God is like that. And eventually, I said that question. I said, well, what is your raw experience of the transcendent or of the divine or of God? What's your raw experience? And I was met with utter silence, which I think that's probably the right response. Like, whoa, wait, okay, what, what's my actual experience? And I don't know if what your life is like, but experiences that I would have called one thing early in life, I might call something different now. <laughs> it's like, or the way I conceived what my parents were up to, then I might think differently now. Same with God. The way I understood God or the way I understood my own life in relation to God, I might look at very differently um, now. So here's my challenge to you. On the personal level, what's, phenomenologically, what's your actual experience? Do you have any experience of God? And, and if so, what? And if you don't like the word God, which is, you know, maybe I could have given another title for this talk. We don't know what the word God means or something like uh, the word God makes me uncomfortable. That would be an interesting title talk. Um, but... That aside, what is, what is then my own experience? What is, what's my own experience really like? And here's just a fun, fun quote from, from Jung. To this day, God is the name by which I designate all things which cross my willful path violently and recklessly. <laughs> all things which upset my subjective views. plans and intentions, and change the course of my life for better or worse. <laughs> Dear God, <laughs> thank you for, what does he say, uh, crossing my path violently and recklessly. I don't know what Jung is up to with this, but I think he's saying something like a confrontation with the transcendent or with something beyond the self, the subjective self, often is disturbing. And he's poking around in that. It's like, whoa, this messes with my worldview. And he says, there's an experience of God. Instead of, I don't know what the alternative would be, I couldn't find a parking place during the Cherry Festival, and all of a sudden there was one. <laughs> and therefore, God intervened, you know. Didn't have time to do other stuff, but parking places particularly interesting to the divine, Okay. 
so, is God that which disturbs or awakens or disrupts our understanding of life? I think that's an interesting way of putting it. And rather than making like a theological claim or a metaphysical claim, Jung, Jung seems to be pulling us into experience. So I'm challenging you. And here's one way to get into your experience. I challenge you to, over lunch or something, tell someone your own history with God. That's an interesting exercise. Like, what's my own history here? What did I think at one time? You're sort of saying, how was I raised? But go just beyond that, like in terms of your own experience. It's actually a very beautiful thing to, to listen to someone's raw experience of life and, and how they conceived of things and what they thought of God, and, and even what's their own history with God. Even when I think about my own early history, it's a bit hard to explain. Like, what was my initial image of God? That's a, an important question. I, I think it was something like this. I imagined, thanks to, well, I don't know if any of you grew up Baptist, but we had these flannel graphs where, like, it was like flannel, and, like, you put these things on there, and they stuck, like lambs and disciples and... Jesus in a bathrobe and stuff, and you stuck them on there, and you, like, moved them around, and, you know. But I think my earliest image is something like that, like a friendly Jesus. Like, that's not a bad way to start. Like, a friendly guy who liked kids and lambs and things like that and, and watched out for you, and that's a fine way to start. It got a little confusing, though, because pretty quickly that same image, a friendly lamb Jesus, was being crucified, and the reason why he's being crucified is because I sinned and stole candy cigarettes from the store and lied to my parents. That's a big jump. <laughs> and then, at least in the world that I came from, nice friendly Jesus had been crucified, and when he comes back, he's going to be pissed. All right, people didn't talk like that, but that's how it was, all right? He's going to be pissed, and he's going to come back with a vengeance, all right? He's going to be riding a white horse, and there's going to be blood on his thigh, and he's going to kill everyone who doesn't believe in him. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh, but those are some of my earliest images of God, and, and well, thank God, I suppose, they didn't get stuck right there, but did I believe those things? I did. I was a kid, you know, and that's part of my early experience and how I imagined the world and how I thought the world worked. And um, I challenge you to, to do your own, like, mini history of, of well, what, it, what did, what, I, what have I meant by God up to this point? And try to say with some clarity to someone that you trust what your own raw experience really is whether you reject the divine or not. Maybe another way of saying it um, is, I guess we can't help it as a species. This came up in um, the pre-talk, because there's that famous line in the, in the Hebrew Bible, let us make man or humanity, Adam means humanity, let us make Adam, humanity, in our image. You know that phrase? Let us make man in our image. But... Many people have said cleverly that it's more, more the case that let man make God in, in our image. That's mostly what we've done. 
we've, we've created the divine in our, own, in our own image. And I think, okay, that's, that's where we all start. I mean, that, that's basically how projection works. You project until you, you know, come to, to integrate some of that stuff. All right, so, but I'm asking, what are your projections? What were your early ones? What ones do you have now? What, what do you imagine? And let's be honest about that. Okay, that's realm number one, the phenomenological realm. What's your raw experience? Here's the other one, and I'm not exactly sure how to say it, but it's something like, I think it's time to more honestly explore the limits of our images, phrases, and ideas about, about God. What are the limits of, of language itself is partly what I'm asking. And are they pointing to something beyond? And might our, our sort of hints and guesses, so to speak, be taking us to the doorstep of a word like mystery? And this is the mystical face of the great religious traditions anyway, what I'm going to say. But I'm going to give you a list of possibilities. And one already came up in, in pre-talk. Um, I think Ellie said, well, I like the phrase, God is mystery, or God as mystery, something like that. God is another name for mystery. God is another name for the things with which we're, we stand in a kind of humble recognition of our own significance or something like that, or what we yet don't yet know. God is mystery. Even Jung says, if I don't, he says, if we could somehow um, wipe the psyche of collective humanity clean, like just in one swoop, like every single mind on the planet, we just wipe it clean. Everybody's a tabula rasa. There's no God. There's no religion. There's no nothing. He said the next day, the psyche would spontaneously produce new images instantaneously. It's like there's something about that desire for the whole, for the transcendent, for mystery that makes us uniquely human. Okay, that's one phrase. Um, I'm going to give you a, 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 a bunch of them. How about from Paul Tillich, God as the ground of being. You know, God as the ground of being, which is another way of pointing to the totality of things. Or Evelyn Underhill, she wrote um, the famous book Mysticism. She doesn't really define God, but every time she uses the word reality, she capitalizes it. That's her definition. <laughs> See, God agrees. God sent that cell phone at just the right time. As soon as I said God is reality, dun, 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 there it is. Explain that. Oh, you can't. Okay, here's a line from James Finley, no idea of God is God. So I'm just pushing now into the mystical realm. No idea of God is God, which is interesting. Like, every idea then is not God. <laughs> if, I mean, that sort of makes like, I want to grow up and become a theologian, you know, a kind of noble, but, um, but uh, I don't know, a grasping after the wind, you could say. No, no idea of God is God. And, and maybe what, what's happening in most of our religious traditions is that we're worshiping an idea. Okay, we're worshiping an idea and not the thing to which it points or to the beyond. It's like we're just attached to the idea. And okay, that's where we all start. Here's another one 
Um, this is a line from St. John of the Cross. He says, perhaps one day God begins to wean us from God. <laughs> and this is, I mean, uh, St. John of the Cross is the one who wrote, wrote The Dark Night of the Soul. I don't want to do a whole thing on that, but um, that's an interesting image. He says, we all start off like little infants. And in our infancy, we need images, we need ideas, we need doctrine statements, we need beliefs, we need, you know, um, rituals. And then one day God says, well, would you like to grow up? And he starts weaning us from all that stuff. Now, this is a Christian mystic saying this. Do you feel how that sounds like heretical? What he's saying is, as soon as you say God is, then one day God says, well, I'm not that, and takes it away. And then now what do you have? And he says, now you're getting closer to the, to the mystery. Or what about Thomas Aquinas? I think about him sometimes because I live on Fulton, and there's like, and Fulton is where, in Grand Rapids, where Aquinas College is, and there's a huge statue of Aquinas that's like by the side of the road. And he wrote the Summa Theologica. And do you know what's interesting about his life story? He didn't finish it. He didn't finish it because at the end of his life, he had what we would call a mystical experience, and he concluded, I can't write anything else. Everything I've written is straw. So his phenomenological experience didn't line up with all of the many words that he used, so he quit. Now, what, what did we go and do and say, well, whatever, he just lost his mind there at the end, and we'll take everything that he wrote and construct a whole system around it because systems are easier to control. Here are a few other ideas. No image of God is God. I've already sort of said that, which is no idea of God is God. And by the way, Judaism and its brilliance early on, 3,000 years ago, was a lot closer to this than we are today. No image of God is God. It's in the Ten Commandments. Make no graven image. Why not? Because as soon as you do, you say, there's God. And they tried to preserve a certain amount of mystery. And, it's, and, and I don't know if, if you know any Orthodox Jews, but they won't even say the name of God or the many names of God in the Hebrew Bible. They won't even say them out loud. They say Hashem, which means the name. Like they're reading the Bible, and they say Hashem. They're just inserting, because they don't want to say the name. That's a way of preserving no image of God as God, no name of God as God, no idea of God as God, so forth and so on. Here's one way of putting it. Whatever we can say about God, we must also say that God is not that. Like, I'll get, here's a good example. God is a father. As soon as that comes out of our mouth, we have to say, and also, that can't possibly be true. It's also not that. I mean, or God exists. Well, what also must come out of your mouth? God does not exist in any way that I understand existence. Because if I understand the way God exists, then I don't understand God. Then I don't, I mean, do you understand existence? Were you just like typing that into Facebook this morning? Well, finally, I finally understand existence. And everyone's like, oh, start a religion. Again, I'm just playing with words. It's sort of like saying everything we say um, has its own limitations. And what I'm suggesting is that these kind of limitations might open us up into something more. So why would we do all this musing and wondering? Why am I like even pushing on this? Uh, that we don't know what we mean by God anymore. And here's what I would say. Because 
We are the creatures who make cave paintings. That's why. That's part of what we do as a species. We make cave paintings. We have visions. We have dreams. We make up poems and stories. We sing in harmony. Where did that come from? What kind of totality does that point toward? Why are we drawn to such a thing? If the group up here was singing wildly off pitch and on their own unique individual melody lines, we would say, this is awful, all right? But if somehow there's like, what is that pull toward, toward totality, toward wholeness, toward unity, toward harmony? What is that? We're the creatures who are drawn to that sort of thing. And we sing about it. We sing about it. And, and we might sing about them poorly. We might sing about them well. I mean, I, mean, I suppose that, you know, we're, we're not perfect. In other words, we're the kind of creatures who sing songs about the mystery of existence. That's what I think. I even think evolution as a scientific theory is a song about the mystery of existence. Even astronomy. Do you hear what Carl Sagan is doing? He is singing a poem about the mystery of existence. And it's captivating. And why do we do that? I, I can't answer that. I just know that that's what we do. <laughs> And so when we're in conversation with a question like, we don't know what we mean by God anymore, it actually opens up a whole bunch of new possibilities for new songs and new melody lines and new harmonies instead of being stuck somewhere. And to keep singing is to be in relationship with the mystery. That's what I'd say. And maybe to sing to the mystery or to sing about the mystery is another name for prayer. That's all a prayer is. It's a song to the mystery of existence. And this keeps us humble. That's my main point. And can we not hope to be in more harmonious relationship with the universe? Just like Sagan, after his entire riff of everything is meaningless, every leader and ideology and pop star except Taylor Swift is meaningless... <laughs> After all that, he still says, shouldn't we be singing a song about kindness and preservation on this pale blue dot? So I think we can be in more harmonious relationship with the universe. And I think one pathway to that, not the only path, is to wonder questions like, what do we mean by reality, by God, by the totality? Perhaps the next generation of spiritual seekers and religions even will come into greater relationship with unknowing. This is a form of agnosticism. You know, gnosis means to know. And to be agnostic is to not know. And we need both of those things to sing harmony, to know and to not know. So I'm suggesting we need to cultivate some healthy agnosticism. Um, and ironically, this is what the, the great mystics of the various traditions, East and West, have always been sort of singing about. Or we must enter the cloud of unknowing. My favorite uh, Christian mystical book is The Cloud of Unknowing, partly because the author is anonymous, which I think, you know, how dumb. You know, you should get your name out there and get published, you know. But he wrote an anonymous book which I think is intriguing in and of itself. So I want to end with a, a phrase from the, from the cloud of unknowing. When I say darkness, I mean a privation of knowing. 
just as whatever you do not know or have forgotten is dark to you because you do not see it with your spiritual eyes. For this reason, that which is between you and your God is termed not a cloud of the air, but a cloud of unknowing. He's saying at a certain point in our kind of growth as human beings, we enter into a kind of agnosticism, and this is the open door to being in greater relationship with reality, otherwise known as, or used to be called, God. Thanks for listening.